So tonight, um, I felt it was right to preach on um, the story, a bit about the story of Caleb, who is actually quite a hero, really. <laughs> so the passage that I'm going to be looking at is Numbers chapter 13. And if we can have it, oh, we've got it, look at that. So I'm going to read, it's quite long, but I think it's important to sort of set the scene. So I better read it off the screen, haven't I? The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent, sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. And then I'm going to skip verses 4 to 16 because it's a list of names. So let's go to verse 17 if we can. Well, look at that. So yeah, these, those were the names of the men. <laughs> when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob towards Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave to Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people, they are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Right, so that's the background. I wanted to read the whole thing just to kind of set the scene. But what I want to look at tonight is some of the principles that I think we can learn from the passage because I think some of these principles literally have the capacity to revolutionise how we live because they're very profound even though they might be very simple too and I think sometimes we can have a tendency to make things quite complex. Although... Kingdom ways are actually normally very simple. And 
a bit like the Israelites, I think we, we can make things overcomplicated to avoid them, to use as excuses sometimes. So this story in Numbers 13, the Israelites, it's fairly obvious, but they're on their way to the promised land, okay? And they're camped on the edge of Canaan. And it's worth noting at this point that the distance from the Red Sea to Canaan is approximately 13 days to walk. Okay, so just putting that out there. <laughs> Verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. What's the most important words, or the word, most important words in that, that little sentence? I am. I am. God is speaking, and God is promising, and God is saying, I'm going to do it. And that's, that's the first thing I want to say, is that actually on our own journeys, wherever we're going, whatever we're doing, we have to base everything that we do on what God says to us. God's, God's word to my life is personal to me. His call to me is personal to me. My journey is not the same as Laurie's or Becky's or Alice's. But that principle also applies to us corporately. That principle applies to St. Leonard's as the body of Christ in this place. And for, for you and I, whether that's as individuals or whether that's for us as a church, for us to enter our promised land, so to speak, we've got to, first of all, walk in dependence on what the Lord says to us. That's not walking independently. That's walking in dependence on what God says. And we've got to be obedient to it. If we don't have that revelation from him, then just like the Israelites, we could end up wandering around in, in a desert place for a very long time. And they could have entered the promised land in 13 days. If, if we don't obey, then we're in rebellion. And I don't want to be in rebellion. I don't know about you, that's a dangerous place to be. God has made so many promises to us. God has spoken to us. We have a wealth of revelation to us as St. Leonard's. And also, hopefully, I'm sure we all have personal revelation on what God is saying. So we need to hear it and we need to obey it. When I was preparing this earlier this week, I, um, I received the, an email called Choose Life from Simon Gilbo in my inbox every day. And I want to read to you an excerpt from one of the, the readings that came in earlier this week because it really challenged me and it's actually quite relevant. So I'm going to read what he wrote, okay? He said this, In 1949, a great revival took place in the Hebrides. I'm sure you all know the, the, the Hebridean revival. Seven men and two women had decided to pray and not stop until God visited them in a powerful way. One night, at a prayer meeting held in a barn, one of them read Psalm 24, 3 and 4. It says this, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
The man shut his Bible and said, it seems to me just so much sentimental humbug to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting here if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. So he asked God to reveal if his own hands were clean and his own heart was pure. Bless you. Suddenly, God's awesome presence swept the barn. They came to see that there was a direct correlation between revival and holiness. A power was let loose that night that shook the land. As Tozer commented, prayer for revival will prevail when radical amendments to lifestyle are made, not before. If we are serious about meeting with God, we have to move beyond the sentimental humbug to which the man referred and embrace lifestyles of authentic obedience. I don't know about you, but that really challenged me about how clean are my hands, how pure is my heart, where is there disobedience and rebellion in me? Because it's there, I know it is. And if we want to walk into our promised land, we can't expect to do so if we're not right before God, whatever that looks like. And so if we go back to the Israelites in our passage, the sad, I think the sad thing about it is that they did hear God. They did hear God, but they didn't obey. They hardened their hearts. And that's what happens if we're not obedient to God's word. Our hearts will get hard, whether we think they will or not. And because of that, they wandered away from God, and they wandered round and round in the desert. And yet it should have been so simple. They were 13 days away. God's plan in those first two verses is so clear. The land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. He said it. And, you know, God's plans and purposes for us are good all the time. If we think they're not, the problem's at our end, not at God's end. The Bible says, doesn't it, that God's will for our lives is good and pleasing and perfect. He wants to bless us. I promise you, he wants to bless every single one of us. And his strategy for the Israelites was for them to enter the promised land with him. And the fact that he says, I am giving you this land, I'm, he's saying, I'm going to do it. I'm at work to fulfill the purposes I have for you. All the Israelites had to do was to choose to go in, in obedience. So it's not, it's not just God doing it. It's what Chris was saying this morning. There's that cooperation between God and his people. It's not just God. It's not just the people. The plan is for them to do it together. God's plan for us is for us to cooperate with him in all that we do. We're designed to walk in collaboration with him. God with us, us with God. It's that divine human cooperative. And it's a very beautiful thing. 
but it requires obedience. And so God is saying to the Israelites, send your leaders into the promised land. And if we go back down to verses 17 to 20, he actually tells them exactly what they should do. Go up through the Negev, go on into the hill country, see what it's like. See what the people are like, see what the land is like. See what the towns are like. Just go, basically go and do a recce. Go and have a look. And so... The, f- the thing I want to say here is that it's, it's God that's initiating even. He's, giving, he's telling them what they should do, and it's very clear. He's, he's made a promise to them, and then he's giving them the strategy. He's showing them exactly what they need to do in order for him to fulfill his promise. Go into the land of Canaan, do your market research, have a look round, and they do, and they discover this beautiful, fertile land. So to start with, they're obedient. There's good food, there's good fruit. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And so, to begin with, it looks like it's going to go well. And then, when we get to verse 22, it says, they went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived okay so that that verse is the first verse that sort of gives a bit of a hint of a snag because Anak the forebear of this group of men was a giant okay we know that and his descendants were were all huge they were like the Goliaths of their day and they had a fearsome reputation as warriors but the thing that we sort of miss when we're reading this, is that there were only three of them. There were only three of them. And so we carry on in the passage. We come down to verse 26. They've they've gone in. They've done their research. They've got this amazing fruit. I mean, two of them carrying a single cluster of grapes on a pole. I can't quite imagine how big those grapes were. But they were clear, it's clearly a fruitful, fertile place. And so they, they come back, these, these appointed leaders come back and they report to Moses. And that's basically when they start to blow it. Verse 27, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And verse 28 but the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. And then further down, we saw the Nephilim, we saw the descendants of Anak. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. That's not what you'd call a statement of faith. They focus on, on the one little tiny problem, three people that they're scared of, but they focus on that. And suddenly, there is no mention of God. There's no mention of what God has told them to do. There's no mention of what God has promised them. And so these, these leaders come back, and suddenly they've got this completely human, natural mindset. All they can see is the problem or problems 
they've, they've forgotten. It sounds to me like they've forgotten what God's been doing over the last four to five months. They've forgotten his faithfulness. The rescue from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, the provision of manna and quail. They seem suddenly in the moment to have forgotten God's extraordinary provision that Chris was talking about this morning, his extraordinary faithfulness to them. They come back from Canaan and suddenly, if you just listen to what they're saying, there's no mention of God whatsoever. It's almost like they've just completely forgotten, not only that he's made these promises to them, but they've almost forgotten that he exists because they're just not referencing it at all. And that's the second point I want to make, because I think we can do that ourselves. I do it. I know I do. Because every time we look at an issue or a problem that we're facing, whatever it is, whether it's a money thing or a health thing or a relationship thing or a job thing, whatever it is, if we don't look at that problem through the lens of what God is saying, then we can become like those Israelite leaders very, very quickly. It's almost... It's almost like being an atheist suddenly, or almost being worse than an atheist, because an atheist has no reason to even think about what God might be saying about the details of their lives. So it's not surprising they live like that. But when you and I do that, just like the Israelites did, we know God's promises, we know he's there for us, we, we know here in our heads that he's always wanting to guide us and protect us and to bless us, but if we don't go to him for his perspective, we're living like the atheists. And then we're surprised when the problems hit us. That's why in the New Testament, we're told to take every thought captive. Because this stuff takes root in our thought life. When we engage with the wrong thinking and give it time and space in our imagination and in our minds we can lose that godly perspective almost in an instant. I did it myself yesterday. I was thinking about something, and suddenly I, I found myself feeling anxious. And thank God, literally, that he pointed it out to me. And at that moment, I thought, actually, I need to deal with this, because I could feel the fear setting in. So I just spent... It was so quick. It was just a few moments repenting, taking the thoughts captive, doing some warfare over that spirit of fear... And it, and it lifted again, and I was able to kind of go, no, actually, I don't need to be scared. We need to be very quick to respond and to be sensitive to when the Holy Spirit is pointing these things out. Because when we, when we fail to look at things through God's perspective, we're not in neutral territory. By ignoring God, we are actually giving access to the enemy immediately. Because we're allowing him to come in and sow those lies into our lives and to magnify them and to magnify the doubt, the unbelief, the fear, whatever it is. Any um, man-centered reason, let's call it what it is, any human-centered reason is a landing pad for the demonic. Because we give him the opportunity to fill our minds and our hearts with doubt and unbelief. And that's rebellion in the end. And the whole thing can become a vicious circle. And we, we end up wondering why we're not seeing breakthrough. 
And sometimes we even end up blaming God. God, why haven't you answered my prayers? And sometimes if we don't blame God, we might blame our church leaders. We've, we've been on both sides of that. We've been on the receiving end of it, and we've been on the other side, blaming church leaders. Because we stop looking at our lives through God's perspective, through God, the lens that God has given us. And that's why I read that passage about the Hebridean revival, because it's about having clean hands and a pure heart, if we want to keep the right perspective. And that's why these Old Testament passages are so helpful because we can see that when we, we think without God in the picture, we end up repeating the same patterns again and again. Because God promises us victory. We have the victory. And so if we end up in defeat, we need to examine our hands and our hearts. But this is why I love Caleb. Verse 30. We've got verse 30. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. His is the faith perspective, isn't it? That's why I think he's such a hero. Because he's not coming under what all the others are saying. He's got his eyes fixed on God. And he, he alone stands out from everyone else. Because he's totally wholehearted for the Lord. <clears throat> he sees everything. He sees the difficulty. He sees the challenges. But he sees it as an adventure through the lens of God's promises. He's the only one who says we can do it because God promised it. And that's what I believe God wants us to say. In term, what, whatever it is with our finances as a church, with the building project, if God's promised it, and he has, he's with us. That is in no doubt. God is with us. And sometimes we feel like we're in a minority when other people around us are going, oh, you know, the sucking of teeth, oh, we can't afford that, or whatever, whatever it is, we need to make sure we don't come under that human-centered reasoning. Even if we feel like the odd one out, even if we feel like no one else is standing with us, even our other Christian friends, because it's so easy to kind of come under this, you know, worldly wisdom, Sometimes people, well-meaning Christian friends, will say something to us, and it sounds like it's wise, but it's a worldly wisdom. It's not a faith perspective. And it is a challenge, because sometimes God says to us, I want you to do whatever it is, and we're thinking, humanly speaking, how can I do it? A bit like the Israelites. How can we go in and defeat these people? We're like grasshoppers. Because God says you can. That's the key. So God is wanting us to choose, and it is a choice, to live by faith. Even if it feels, and I mean feel, just feels, sort of irresponsible compared to the worldly wisdom. Because actually, sometimes it might feel like we're going out on a limb. But as I look back over my life, I, I can say absolutely, 100%, that God has never let me down. 
He has always been faithful, every time. And I think God is challenging us to live by faith, whatever that looks like. In fact, if we're Christians, it is the only way to live. We can't be a Christian and not live by faith. It, it's, not, it's not enough just to get saved by faith and then carry on carrying on living as if nothing has changed. I think sometimes we, we look at the expression living by faith and think, oh, that's what these missionary couples do who have no other income. But it's not, it's not just a finance thing. It's about how we live our whole lives. It just means hearing God speak into our lives and living it out in every single area. That's what living by faith is about. It's living in obedience. It's about being wholehearted. And Caleb was prepared to live by faith. But even after he says that, that's when the other Israelites leader come back at him and they're disagreeing. They're saying, verse 31, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. There's three of them. <laughs> and the rest of the Israelites spread a bad report about the land they'd explored. I mean, this sentence, they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. My goodness, that's not a statement of faith, is it? That is a statement of extreme fear, unbelief and doubt. And that's what happens, you know, when we, when we start listening to the lies, to the doubt, to the unbelief, that, that then snowballs. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. And suddenly all of the Israelites are believing that they face an impossible task. And we know from scripture that they wandered in the desert for another 40 years. Oh my goodness, in, in one sense, that's, that's just so awful. They were 13 days walk away. God has already said to them, I am giving you this land. And yet, they listen to the lies and they allow that to dominate absolutely everything. It's an absolute tragedy in many ways. And what, what happens is they all go into this extraordinary insignificance. We're like grasshoppers. The enemy found a landing pad. And he used it to huge effect. And it's all based in lies. Which is why we need to look at things through God's perspective. Because only then will we see the lies for what they are. Now I haven't read chapter 14, but as, as the story continues into chapter 14, the situation worsens and the Israelites become more and more negative to the point of wishing they died in Egypt. That's how much their, their thought life is infected by engaging with the, the negativity and the unbelief. And God is deeply saddened. God is appalled. It leads to Moses begging for mercy on behalf of the people. It's really, it's such a sad situation. 
And Moses begs the Lord to forgive them. And in verse 20 of chapter 14, don't worry, because I didn't give this to you to put up on the screen, but it says, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. God takes this stuff very, very seriously. And so we need to do the same. Because there are consequences to our sin and unbelief. We cannot expect to just receive everything that God has promised if we don't cooperate with him. If we're living with hardened hearts in sin and rebellion and unbelief, then the only reason we're not going to see our prayers answered, it's on us, because God wants to answer us. It's not to say God won't be with us. It's not to say God doesn't bring redemption. Of course he does. And he, he can turn all things to good. But it does require our repentance. It does require us to have pure hearts, clean hands and pure hearts. It's no good, we, we all know, it's no good living with the attitude that says, oh, it's okay, God's going to forgive me anyway. I mean, that's the extreme. But we can't do that. We can't have an easy come, easy go attitude to sin. And if you look at this story, you can see how dark and how devastating are the consequences of the Israelite sin. Not one of this generation will enter the promised land. That's why they end up wandering around in the desert for another 40 years. And so the question, I think, is why? Why is this such a big deal to God? Why is it such a big deal to God? Chapter 14, 23. No one who has treated me with contempt... It's a very interesting word. That's how God describes the fact that the Israelites didn't trust him and didn't believe his promises. He says they're treating him with contempt. They didn't obey him. That's contempt for God. And what is significant actually here is that the people treating with God treating God with contempt are the leaders it was the leaders of the people that went in to Canaan it was the leaders they were religious men they kept the sabbath they followed the laws they observed the sacrifices today they would be part of the church part of God's people so it's not like they're a bunch of rebels. I mean, they are in the end, but you know what I mean. They're not adulterers. They're not criminals. They're not murderers. 
They're the supposedly godly leaders, and yet God says, these people have treated me with contempt. And actually, that then applies to the whole nation, because the whole nation come under that unbelief. The whole people group come under the enemy's deception. It is actually quite extraordinary. I, I was thinking about this, I was thinking, how, how do we define contempt today? And I came across this example. I thought, that actually, this is quite good. Supposing I offer to make a birthday cake for a friend and bring it along to this friend's party. And when I get to the party, there's a shop-bought cake sitting in the middle of the table, and the friend says, I didn't think you'd do it, I didn't trust that you'd keep your promise. How's that friend then treated me? With contempt. Would I be hurt? Hmm, of course I would. It's treat that, uh, that friend would be treating the relationship that we had, they'd be treating the promise, they'd be treating me with contempt. It's a strong, strong word. And to, be, to not believe what God is saying to us, to not listen to his promises, is to treat him with contempt. And in one sense, and, and from God's perspective, I think this is a more dangerous sin than, than those we consider to be the big sins, you know? Adultery, theft, and murder, and all of that stuff, because it's hidden. That's why it's dangerous. It's a hidden sin. Because we can look like we're, we're doing everything right on the outside. We, we, appear to, we appear to present as the same. You know, we can come to church, we smile at everyone, <laughs> we maintain the status quo, but what's going on in our hearts? Oh my goodness, Lord, show me if there's any contempt in me because I don't want it in there. Root it out. Am I believing in and am I living God's word? Because if I'm not, I'm in contempt of him. Only Caleb was not treating God with contempt. And I love the fact that God sees it. I just read to you verse 24, my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. I love that word wholehearted. And my prayer is that that's what we will be, that we will be a wholehearted people. We have a wholehearted God. And he's looking for a people who are equally wholehearted. The, the greatest commandment is to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Not just a bit of it. That's what being wholehearted is. Anything less than that is just easy come, easy go. It's contemptuous. And so let's really take hold of the fact that God is calling us to be a wholehearted people. Because it's God's wholehearted people who will receive everything that he wants to give. Lots, many of you will know the verse where in Revelation, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it talks about God spitting out the lukewarm church. Let's be wholehearted. So the question is how? How can we be wholehearted? 
And I think we need to be careful we don't fall into the first approach, which is approaching it with, with a fearful attitude. Oh, my goodness, if I'm not wholehearted, I'll fail, I'll be punished. It's not that kind of thing at all. Because if we do that, we'll end up striving, and we won't have the peace and the joy that God wants to give us. So we don't approach it like that. We approach it with grace, God's grace. We come to him, and the, the only thing we can say is, Lord, I want to be wholehearted. We can't conjure up wholeheartedness, but we can, we can come willing to be helped willing to submit and surrender to the Holy Spirit and allow him to make us wholehearted. It's not a striving thing. Please hear me. It's not a striving thing. It's not an effort thing, a human effort. It's not a religious thing. It's a grace thing. It's, Lord, help me to be wholehearted. I give you myself. It's like, it's like a, little, a little child going to their parent and saying, can you give me 10 pounds? Because I want to buy you a present. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. And supposing a dad gives his son 10 pounds so his son can buy his dad a birthday present. And he comes back and he gives it to his dad on dad's birthday. And the dad is absolutely thrilled that the son cares enough to ask for 10 pounds in the first place. It doesn't matter that he paid the £10. It's the heart behind it. And it's the same with God. He's thrilled when we come to him and go, Dad, help me. I pray that you give me what I need to be wholehearted because I can't do it on my own. God loves it when we say to him, Lord, do what you need to do with me. I surrender to you because that is the way of grace. All we need is our willingness because God does the rest. This is not something we can do on our own. And when we come to God in faith, his revelation will cause our faith to grow. We, he, will, he will enable us, when we're willing, to see life through his perspective. And we'll grow in it. Many of us have already been on this journey for a long time, and we are all growing in it. The last thing I want is for anybody to leave here tonight feeling condemned. Absolutely not. This is, I've, I'm really praying that this is an encouragement, not, a, not an uncomfortable condemnation thing, because condemnation does not come from the Lord. Let's choose to be like Caleb. Let's just simply choose to be wholehearted. And not having, not having a divided heart. That's the opposite. The opposite of wholehearted is having a divided heart. Hearts with a bit of God at the centre, but also a bit of the world and, and quite a lot of me, probably. And that, of course, we're all there to a certain extent. But it's our willingness to allow God to change us that makes the difference. The divided heart produces unbelief. Just, just like it did in those Israelite leaders when they came back from Canaan. A divided heart actually attracts unbelief. It attracts enemy lies. Because it says, oh, I can't do this. It's all too difficult. And if I'm half-hearted, that actually, that actually stops God releasing faith to me because my heart isn't able to receive what he wants to give me. 
because I end up being too focused on the worldly stuff or on my problems. But you know what, if, even if you're sitting there tonight and thinking, my heart does feel divided, it can be dealt with in a moment. A single prayer, Lord, forgive me. Repentance. Lord, I'm so sorry, I see the division in my heart. I see the compromise. I just choose to give everything to you. And it's dealt with. It's dealt with. Because God knows where, where I'm not wholehearted. He knows where we're not wholehearted. Whether that's as individuals or as a whole church. But if we're willing to address it, if we're willing to go there, he'll, he'll be faithful to our prayers. He'll move us on. Even if we need to recommit to wholeheartedness every single day, and I suspect most of us probably will. I do. Stuff gets in the way. And that's, that's how it was with Caleb. Caleb chose life. Life in all its fullness. You know what, 40, he stayed with the Israelite people for those 40 years, 45 years or whatever it was, wandering around the desert. And if we, if you, I'm not going to read it now, but if you go to Joshua chapter 14, I think it's 6 to 15, Caleb and Joshua lead the people into the promised land. God is faithful to his promise. Caleb lived his whole life and he fixed his eyes on those promises of God and he went after them. He did not lose faith in spite of that weight. That's a long wait. That's a flipping long time to wait. And he didn't allow his... I mean, it would have been so easy to give up and just think, well, no one else is with me. I might as well just give in. But he didn't. He was faithful through and through. He didn't allow those feelings to change his perspective. We need to not allow our feelings to change our perspective. We need to not allow the atmosphere around us to change our perspective. I mean, this is a very trite example, but I was with someone on Friday whose perspective is changed by the weather dramatically every time. And you know what the weather was like on Friday, it was grim. <laughs> we need to not allow our perspective to be changed by our bank balance or by what's happening in the political arena. We need to remain wholehearted. We need to know that God is for us and we need to take our promised land. Caleb knew his inheritance, and he knew it was coming. He did not lose sight of his inheritance. And he stood with the Israelite people, and he fought alongside them all that time. And I want to finish with this. I, I, you might think I bang on about this, but I just think this is so important. I know I've said it before, but he saw himself first as an Israelite and not as an individual. That's what enabled him to stand with his brothers and sisters. And that's the challenge to us, because we see ourselves first as individuals. We just do. It's how we've been brought up. I mean, I think we would be so fed up looking after everyone else and having to wait for our inheritance. 
because it goes against the grain. We see ourselves, yes, we're, we're all children of the living God. But do we see ourselves first as an individual child of God or first as a member of God's body, the church? We are members of a community of faith, first, corporate, and individual second. And it's really hard to wrap our heads around that, but I really believe it's important. We're happy to see ourselves as part of a community when it suits us, but not when it doesn't. I mean, I've been there. I've chosen sometimes maybe not to go to a prayer meeting because I'm too tired, even though there's been a call to pray. Laurie has called us as a body to fast and pray through the month of August. Are we going to do that because we're more committed to the body? Or are we going to say no because it's too tough personally? How many people choose not to get... This is not directed at anybody here, it's just an example. But if we don't get to church on time because we've got something more important going on, we think, oh, it won't matter. What, what is priority for us? And, you know, we've got, we've got many lovely people who, who just don't want to come to the main Sunday service, even though that's what God is calling. And I understand to a certain extent, but actually it's a divided heart if we're not being obedient to what God is saying to us as a body first. I know this is horrendously challenging, but it's not about whether I personally like the worship style. It's about what God is saying to St. Leonard's. That's important because... That's what being wholehearted looks like. It looks like being sold out for Jesus and being part of his community, his chosen people. When we're, when it's, when, when we're focused on me and Jesus, me and Jesus, and it is, me and Jesus is important. My relationship with Jesus is fundamentally very important, but we are part of the body and that should not be secondary to me and Jesus. Do you see what I mean? Because that's the opposite of a biblical mindset. We're part of the people of God first. We're, we're called to be part of a team. At the moment, all of us here are called to be part of St. Leonard's. With the possible exception of Chris, who's about to go, because <laughs> he's being called to go and be part of a team somewhere else. But he's the only one at the moment. Being an individual is only slightly, but it is slightly secondary to being part of the body. It, we're an army. You can't have an individual sol soldier in an army that has the mindset, oh, I'm just me in the middle of a battle that doesn't play their part. We are God's army. We're in a battle. We have to take our place and stand with our brothers and sisters. You imagine every individual soldier saying, oh, I don't like this very much, I'm off. <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny, but it's also what some of us attempted to do. So let's take it serious. Being wholehearted means being wholehearted about being a team member too. Because what we do and what we decide impacts the whole body. And if we've got people saying, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't agree, it doesn't suit me, it's damaging to the whole body. And it's dangerous. It's a dangerous place to be. So 
My call for us tonight is to choose wholeheartedness and to be willing to take our place in God's community. Because I believe that's the only way that we're going to enter our inheritance, that we're going to enter our promised land. And you know, the really good thing is, when we enter our promised land as a community, we will enter as individuals too. It's, it, that's a given. <laughs>